Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome all those who are uh, joining with us via live stream. I want to welcome Reach Church DeSoto and also the venue service meeting right down the hall. I believe there's also some folks in some overflow rooms this morning. Hey, isn't it good to be back in church? Amen? It's good to be in God's house. It's good to see all of you here this morning. John 20. This morning, we're going to look briefly at a chapter and a passage that was written for one specific purpose. In fact, of all the gospel writers, John alone tells us why he writes. He wrote this gospel. He wrote this chapter specifically so that you could have a personal encounter with the resurrected Christ and that you would believe in him and you'd never be the same. That's why this is written. So my prayer for our time, that my goal today is not just to give you some teachings and principles on love and joy and peace and justice and those types of things. That's what you came for this morning. You came to the wrong place. Because listen to me this morning. All the teachings of Christ are meaningless apart from the resurrection of Christ. There's a lot of people out there today say, well, we're not, we're not sure about this whole resurrection thing. You know, we're modern people. We're educated, and that's hard to believe. But then at the same time, they want to give you the teachings of Christ. We believe in the spirit of Christ and the teachings of Christ. Listen, the teachings of Christ are meaningless apart from the resurrection of Christ. So I, I don't want to pull a little bait and switch on you this morning. I'm up front with you today. My goal for every one of you in this room today is that you would have a personal encounter with the resurrected Christ. You'd believe in him and you'd never be the same. Just like the people in this narrative. So with that in mind, let's read it. Let's read this chapter. We'll pray together. We'll work our way through it. Chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll, I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. 
And Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And then look down to verse 24. It says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here, with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing and Thomas answered and said to him my Lord and my God and Jesus said to him because you have seen me have you believed blessed are those who did not see and yet believe father we thank you for your word this morning and father it is my prayer that today by the testimony of John and these witnesses that all of us today would have a personal encounter with Christ and if there's anyone here that's never trusted in Christ, today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here on that first Easter Sunday, Mary comes to the tomb while it's still dark outside. Darkness is over uh, the land. And in many ways, you could say that most of the people, in fact, all the people here are in the dark as to what has just occurred. The disciples are in shambles. This man that they had followed, that they had given their life to, that they had found all their hopes and dreams in, he's now dead. And hope seems to be lost. In fact, I think their thought is it's been a good run, but it's all now over. They've heard Jesus talk about the resurrection on many occasions, but none of them are at the tomb on the third day. You know, some who doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, say that the disciples were just so full of faith that they didn't really see Christ. They were just so full of faith that they began to have hallucinations and visions. Well, it's really hard here to argue that the disciples are full of faith. In fact, I would argue that they're not full of faith. They have no real faith. Otherwise, they would have been at the tomb on that morning. No, these guys, make no mistake about it, they thought it was over. One of them's committed suicide. The leader, the spokesman of the group, has denied Christ based on the bold interrogation of a little servant girl. And now they are holed up in a room like cowards, fearful that some Jew or Roman soldier will barge in and carry them off to be executed as well. No, the disciples are not full of faith. They are full of doubt and fear. They aren't even at the tomb. But it's Mary who comes on that Monday morning, or that Sunday morning. It's Mary who comes to the tomb. And this is also remarkable, because Mary will be the first to the tomb. Mary will be the first to see the resurrected Christ. Mary will be the first to proclaim the resurrected Christ. And this is interesting, because in that culture, women didn't even have a right to vote. In that culture, they could not give testimony in a court of law. Listen, if you're going to make up some fictional story about the resurrection, you don't put Mary and women at the tomb first. 
So if you're going to believe, as many do, that this was a story that was made up by the gospel writers, then you have to believe that the ones who came up with this nonsense believed that it would be a good idea to paint the future leaders of the church as a bunch of cowards holed up in a room, and it was the big brave women who went to the tomb first. No, this speaks to the validity and the historicity of this account. Well, Mary comes to the tomb. She discovers the stone is rolled away. And what is her immediate conclusion? Mary doesn't see the stone rolled away and declare immediately, he's risen, he's risen indeed. No, her immediate conclusion is that somebody has carried off the body. Mary cannot conceive of a resurrection, and she's not alone, neither can the disciples. The disciples did not make up a resurrection story. In fact, they couldn't even conceive of it. It didn't even enter their minds. They didn't anticipate this at all. Mary didn't anticipate it. So she comes, she sees the stone rolled away. She thinks that somebody's carried off the body and she immediately runs to Peter and John to tell them what has happened. Peter and John meet up and begin to run to the empty tomb, probably somewhat like a competition. And it appears that Peter was a bit more of a distance runner and John was a bit more of a sprinter. So John arrives first. And as is probably his, his uh, personality, he's a little bit hesitant, a little more cautious, and he stops. But Peter, being impetuous, Peter doesn't even flinch an eye. He runs right in, and he looks. And then both of them see the grave cloths. They see them lying there, and then they see the, the face cloth rolled up by itself. This description indicates that the cloths are folded up neatly and perfectly as if they had never been disturbed and the body of Jesus had just passed through them. In other words, they weren't torn off. They weren't untied. So clearly this is not the result of, of grave robbers. Grave robbers were, were, were common in that day. But certainly grave robbers wouldn't have, have tied these, pulled these things off, untied them, and then taken the time to fold them up neatly back in their place as if Jesus were still lying there. And it also indicates that Jesus wasn't just kind of revived and he had to tear off the grave clothes or untie them like Lazarus did. You remember Lazarus, when he came forth, they had to help him take the grave cloths off. No, the picture that's painted here is that Christ is resurrected. All these eyewitnesses give testimony to the fact that the tomb is empty. Mary, after Peter and John have gone, she goes to the tomb herself. I think she wants to see. And she asked this individual who she thinks to be the gardener, but we know to be Jesus. She asked, if you've carried him away, tell me where he is and I'll go get him. All the historical evidence points to an empty tomb. It's very difficult to object to the empty tomb. If you're going to object to the empty tomb, you have to believe in some form of miracle. You've either got to believe in a psychological miracle that these disciples stole the body. And then the question is, why would they steal the body? If they stole the body, where would they put the body? And if they stole the body, why would they then go out and proclaim a resurrected Christ, which would be a lie, and then be willing to die for the lie that they had propagated? That's what you call a psychological miracle. Or you have to believe in a biological miracle, that Jesus didn't really die, he just kind of fell asleep, that the Roman soldiers who came to broke his, break his legs didn't really know what death looked like, in fact, Roman soldiers knew death really well. 
but that they didn't know death and that they didn't really pierce his side and blood and water didn't really flow and that somehow Jesus was placed in a tomb, wrapped up, and later just kind of came to, ate a warm bowl of soup and then hit the streets of Jerusalem. Folks, that's what you call a biological miracle. Listen, every one of those alternative explanations require more faith to believe in than the simple explanation of Scripture, which is that Christ was resurrected, that the tomb is empty, Jesus is alive, and death is defeated. Christ physically rose from the grave. He appeared to to Peter, to Mary, to to the disciples, Paul tells us that he appeared on one occasion to more than 500 people at one time. I believe that would stand up in a court of law. But I also realize that that we live in a very skeptical culture. Our culture is skeptical of everything. Skepticism is the hallmark of our world today, and it's not surprising, and quite frankly, it's not all that bad. We need to be careful that we do not fall victim to somebody else's certainties. Not everything, I think y'all know this, not everything that you read or hear is true. How about that? And we've all been duped at some point or another. And so I think it's so important and it's incredibly significant that one of the hallmarks of John's gospel is the inclusion of the account of Thomas. Because Thomas Thomas is an honest skeptic. We admire his stubborn refusal to believe anything without some concrete evidence. And you'll remember this is the guy in John chapter 11 when Jesus tells the disciples, hey, we got to go down to Judea. we got to visit Lazarus who's, who's died. And the disciples know that there's people in Judea who want to kill them and want to kill Jesus. And you remember what Thomas says, well, that's great. Let's just all go down to Judea and die together. That's literally what he says. What a positive, forward-thinking guy to have around, amen? Any of you got a Thomas like that in your life? Just a hard-headed, stubborn guy who always thinks the worst of Every situation. In fact, he's the guy in John 14 when Jesus said, I'm going to go away. It's okay. Uh, You'll be where I am. And you remember Thomas just jumps right in, just butts right in and says, Lord, we don't have any idea where you're going. How do we know the way? Don't you love his honesty? And it brings out of Jesus that famous statement, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. I'm so thankful for the bluntness. I'm so thankful for the skepticism of Thomas. Here's a hard-headed guy who needs some concrete proof. And so right here in John 20, 24 and 25, the other disciples have seen Jesus. Thomas hasn't. And Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and unless I put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas says, guys, I'm not that gullible. I need irrefutable evidence. I need to see the nail marks. i got to touch his side. And when you think about it, it's kind of gruesome, isn't it? I mean, imagine going to visit a friend in the hospital and saying, I think you're faking it. And I ain't going to believe until I put my finger in that incision. (laughs) Folks, if you say that, you're sicker than your friend, all right? (laughs) But that's the kind of evidence that Thomas is asking for. He wants concrete data. He wants something that can be investigated with his senses, something he can touch and and see and feel, or he's not going to believe. I'm so grateful for Thomas because Thomas' request debunks the myth that this was just a group of mindless, gullible fishermen and tax collectors. 
who found themselves in a situation where they're just looking for hope in a hopeless situation. Listen, does, does Thomas strike you as some kind of gullible daydreamer? A guy who says, there's no way I'm going to believe this unless I can put my hand on his side and see those wounds. Now, you've got to deal with Thomas's skepticism. But here's Thomas. He wasn't there. Christ, earlier, a week earlier, it appeared to the disciples Thomas wasn't there. On this Sunday afternoon, uh, or on that previous Sunday afternoon, Thomas wasn't there. We don't know where Thomas was at. I, I'm actually of the firm conviction that Thomas was watching the masters on that Sunday afternoon, which is, which is what I would have been doing. But we don't know where Thomas is at. But in verse 26, Jesus appears again to the disciples, and Jesus confronts Thomas. In verse 27, Jesus says, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Put your hand into my side. This is powerful because Jesus has no earthly way of knowing about Thomas's little litmus test, except the fact that Jesus is God and he knows everything about Thomas. But the important principle here is, listen, listen, because I think there's a lot of people who think, well, if, you gotta, if you're going to believe in Christianity, you just got to leave your brain at the door, you know? You just got to be a gullible, mindless, crazy person to believe in this stuff. Listen, Christianity does not shy away from skepticism, and it does not shy away from investigation. We call men and women to investigate. Please investigate. Your eternal destination hangs in the balance. Do vigorous investigation. We welcome it. Christ welcomes it. See, the fact of the matter is, what I have found is that most people do not believe, not because they've investigated Christianity and found it lacking. No, they don't believe because they've never investigated it in the first place. They've never, I, re, I encounter so many people who reject Christianity and they've never even read the gospel accounts. We welcome investigation, but let me warn you, as you begin to investigate Christ, don't be surprised if you find out, as Thomas did, that Christ is actually the one investigating you. That's the beauty of this word. It is alive. So we welcome it. So Jesus presents himself before Thomas in a powerful moment. And he says to Thomas, you want proof? Here's the proof. proof. You, you want to touch and feel? That's the game you want to play, Thomas? I'll play your little games. Touch and feel. Here it is. Yes, Thomas, I did die. Yes, Thomas, I was buried. And yes, Thomas, I have risen. And that is what you call personal eyewitness testimony of the resurrected Christ. The resurrection of Christ is not subjective. It's not theoretical. It is historical. If you and I had been there, we would have seen Christ, we would have heard Christ, and we would have touched him. Jesus is a historical figure who lived and died and rose. But listen, it's not just about the evidence. This book is not just another historical book. It is a historical book, but it's not simply a historical book that's written to fill your head with historical information. No, John makes clear, in fact, look with me at verses 30 and 31. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is not writing simply to give you a bunch of historical data. He's writing to give you personal testimony of the risen Christ that you might believe in him and have life. You see, Thomas was changed, Mary was changed, the disciples were changed, not just by information, 
They were not even changed primarily by the teachings of Christ. They were with Jesus for three years and never really changed. But what changed them? What changed Peter and Mary and John and the disciples was a personal encounter with the resurrected Christ. And the gospel writers recorded their eyewitness testimony so that you and I too could have a personal encounter with Christ. To have a personal encounter with the one who is God, who was physically born in a manger in Bethlehem, who physically lived, who physically died, was physically placed in a tomb, who physically rose and defeated the grave, and who will one day physically return again to rule and to judge. And the question is, have you met him? Do you have a personal relationship with him? And you'll notice at the end of Jesus' encounter with Thomas is a bit of a rebuke. In verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed, Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, do not misunderstand Jesus' statement here. He's, he's He's not requesting faith without evidence. He's requesting faith without sight. Biblical faith is not faith without evidence. It's faith without sight. There's a huge difference. We believe a lot of things in this world without sight. So many things that you have never seen with your own eyes or never really touched with your own hands, but you believe them on the basis of credible testimony from another individual. In fact, you go to a doctor and a doctor diagnoses you with a particular situation or disease that you maybe can't see, you maybe can't even feel, but you believe the doctor because he is a credible witness. Biblical faith is not faith without evidence, it's faith without sight, meaning this morning I I cannot show you the physically resurrected Christ Christ could do that if he wanted, but I can't do it for you. I can't just pull out a bag of miracles and present Jesus to you today and say, here he is. But you know what I can do? I can point you to the reasonable, credible, and personal testimony of these men recorded for us here in the New Testament. These men who have been changed. And any serious investigation of Christianity has to ask, what in the world changed these guys? How in the world did this group of guys who appear to be cowards, tucked away in a room, overwhelmed with fear, become a group of guys 49 days later who are proclaiming that Jesus is alive and they're willing to die for him. And the only reasonable explanation is that they had a personal encounter with the resurrected Christ. And I believe that the the real reason that Thomas receives a rebuke from Jesus is because he should have believed on the basis of the testimony of his friends. That all the evidence that Thomas really needed was right there in the room in front of him. The evidence that he needed was these guys who had been changed dramatically by the gospel. Thomas knew these men. He knew that they were honest, reasonable men of integrity. But their witness, their testimony wasn't enough for him. So he's got to set up this little litmus test. And Jesus is essentially saying to him, listen, I'll bend to your little request for proof. But you could have believed without ever seeing. And in fact, Jesus says the real blessing belongs to those who have not seen. But believe on the basis of the personal eyewitness testimony of these men recorded for us in God's word. 
and millions and millions and millions of believers throughout the centuries have come to faith in the resurrected Christ on the basis of the credible testimony of these men recorded for us here in God's word. And my question is, have you checked them out? Because so many people, so many people, Easter comes and Easter goes, you walk in, you walk out, you look at the eggs, you look at the bunnies, you wonder why anybody goes to church at all, and your only hope is that the service doesn't last too long so that you can get to your nice little lunch with your family, and you do not realize that your eternal destination hangs in the balance. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a more significant event than this. The question of the resurrection is fundamental to living and it's fundamental to facing death. As Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, if Christ is not alive, then those who have died, they're still dead in their sins. Our faith is worthless. Our, our preaching is in vain. The whole deal is a waste of time and a sham. If there is no resurrection, then I was born without reason. I prolonged my life by chance and in the end there's only oblivion. Without the resurrection of Christ, there is nothing to give you the meaning of life, the answers to life, and there's nothing to give you the hope of a future. And we exist in a world that today, for the most part, has completely thrown off the idea of a resurrection. In fact, there's a good bit of churches that will not even stand on the truth of the bodily resurrection of Christ. And is it no wonder that our world is filled with all kinds of hate and violence and suicide and evil and senseless murder? Should we really be surprised when a secular worldview that tells you and your children that life has no real meaning, you have no real purpose, and the end is only oblivion without any real judgment, should we be surprised that that kind of worldview produces the kind of evil and sinful confusion that we see in our world today? We should not be surprised. But folks, on the flip side of this, if there is a resurrection, then today there's an opportunity for forgiveness. If there is a resurrection, then today there's a friendship available to you like no other. If there is a resurrection today, then there is purpose and meaning to life. If there is a resurrection today, then you, you can have the promise of heaven. And some of you today, listen to me, some of you today, you are burdened by the guilt of your sin. You are burdened by the guilt of your sin. You have a feeling deep inside of you, and you're trying everything you can to remove that guilt. You're trying all kinds of things. If I do this, do that, maybe I'll remove some of this guilt from my life. You've got a guilty feeling deep in your heart. You know why you have that feeling? Because you're guilty. We're all guilty. Every one of us in this room. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned in word and thought and action against a holy and righteous God. And the stain of our guilt is upon our lives and we are broken. You know what you find? You find a whole world full of people that are trying to scrub away the guilt and the stain of their sin and they can't remove it. They're trying works. They're trying church attendance. They're trying to fix their life with drugs and relationships and jobs and money 
And no matter how hard they scrub and no matter how hard they try, they cannot remove the guilt of sin on their life and they cannot fix their brokenness. And let me tell you why. Because God has only provided one solution and his name is Jesus Christ. We call it the gospel. The good news that God saw you dead in your transgressions and sins, saw you in a place of hopelessness, saw you stained by the guilt of your sin, and yet he loved you. And he sent his son Jesus, who left the glory of heaven, came and lived a perfect and sinless life, and died on a cross for your sins, not for his, but for yours. He took your place, all your guilt, all your shame, he took it upon your, his shoulders. He died for you, so that you, through faith in Christ, could have the righteousness of God. Scripture says, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That today you can be a part of the greatest gift exchange ever known to the world. You give God your sin and he gives you his righteousness. That's a pretty good trade, amen. And how do we know it's true? How do we know this is true? Because he was raised from the dead. His resurrection is the defeat, the ultimate defeat of sin, Satan, and death. And it's an affirmation that he is who he said he was, and he can do what he said he can do. Now, you know how you receive this, this salvation? You know how you receive this? This is the best news ever. Best part of the gospel. You receive it on the basis of faith. Not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of what you believe. That if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So that no one should boast. You believe in Jesus. You trust him completely. You say, I can't, I can't trust myself because I can't save myself. I've tried. I can't do it. You trust in Christ. You know what I found? The number one reason why people will not trust in Christ. Because they don't want to release control of their life. They're scared to death of releasing control of their life. They're not sure. They're just not really sure I can trust this guy. Why should I trust it? Why in the world should I trust this man, Jesus? And if you're asking that question, you know what I think you need to do? You need to put yourself in the shoes of Thomas. What made Thomas release his life? What caused Thomas to, to fall down and cry out, my Lord and my God? What was it? You know what it was? It was the scar. When Jesus said to Thomas, look here, look right here. And Thomas saw the scars. And he fell on his face and cried, my Lord and my God. Scars always tell a story, don't they? I bet almost everybody in this room has got a scar somewhere on your body and you could tell a story about how you got that scar. What story, what story do the scars of Jesus tell? You know what the scars of Jesus tell you? They tell you of the pain. They tell you of the agony. And they tell you of his love. They tell you the lengths that he would go and the depths that he would descend in order to save you. In order to have a relationship with you. In order to give you the free gift of salvation. And it could be right now in this room this morning, you are having a personal encounter with the resurrected Christ. And he is saying to you, just like he said to Thomas, look at my scars. Stop doubting. Stop controlling. 
and stop your conditions and trust me. Trust me. Right now, I want every head bowed and every eye closed, just right where you're seated. Every head bowed, every eye closed. This week, I had an opportunity to meet with a man named Michael. He was here last Sunday, sat in a seat much like you're sitting in today, and I extended an invitation. He felt God compelling him to respond, and he was scared. He didn't respond, but on Monday, he reached out to me said I'd love to meet we met he told me of some of the things that were going on in his life and I asked him Michael tell me about your relationship with Jesus he said well I I started going to church when I was little I stopped him and I said Michael tell me about your relationship with Jesus He said, well, I I stopped going to church, but I started going to church again. I said, Michael, tell me about Jesus. And I asked him a very pointed question. I said, and all of you need to hear this this morning, because I don't want any confusion. I asked Michael, I said, Michael, if you stand before God today and he were to ask you, why should I allow you into my kingdom, what would you say? And Michael, with tears in his eyes, he would said, I would have to say, I have failed. And I said, Michael, you know what? You're right, and so have I. And so is every one of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then I was able to tell him about what Christ did for him. You know what he did? He bowed his head right there, and he trusted in Jesus as the only means of salvation. And I'm asking you this morning, right where you're seated, I want everybody, everybody in this room, I want you to think about this right now. You standing before God, what are you going to say? Why should he let you into his kingdom? If you say anything that you've done, then you're trusting in you. The only acceptable response is I'm trusting Jesus. And if you've never done that, if you've never trusted in Christ, you've never had a moment where you realize, I'm a sinner, Christ is my only means of salvation. I'm not asking if you've joined a church. I'm asking you, have you personally trusted Christ? If you've never done that, I want you to do that right now. And I'm not going to lead you in a prayer because the words don't matter. It's the attitude of your heart. But if you know today that you are dead in your transgressions and sins, if you know you can't save yourself, if you know Jesus is your only hope, I'm asking you right now where you're at, right now, would you cry out to Christ to forgive you? You know what his word says? He's faithful and just. If you'll ask for forgiveness, he's faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. Would you ask him to save you this morning, right now, right where you're seated? You cry out to him. Father, we thank you for the free gift of salvation that you've provided through Christ who came, lived, died, and rose for us. And God, I believe with all my heart there's some people in this room. There's people at Reach Church DeSoto right now. I think there's people in the venue service. I believe there's people watching online. I believe there's people right in this room that for the very first time they trusted in Christ. And God, I praise you for their decision. 
I pray that he who began a good work in them will carry it on to completion. And I pray that we would be the church you've called us to be. We would disciple them as they seek to follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.